Welcome! Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and on Sundays for one service at 10. Also, if you're looking for a place to celebrate Christmas, we welcome you to come on December 24th to one of our Christmas Eve services at 1, 3, or 5 p.m. You can find more details about the day at waterstonechurch.org. We look forward to connecting with you. Thank you, Julianne. That was a gift. How many college and graduate students or military personnel do we have back with us today? Would you stand up? College kids? There's some, yeah. Welcome home. Glad to be. And uh, we won't make you stand up. Maybe wave your hand. How many of you are visiting us from out of town today? Your guests, uh, Thanksgiving. Yeah, welcome. Welcome. Glad to have you here. We welcome our online audience, wherever you're watching from today as well. Last night at our Saturday service, I was asked during a greeting time, what are you most looking forward to at Waterstone this Advent season? And uh, what I'm most looking forward to is something we've never done before. We're going to have a service uh, called Blue Christmas. It's on December 14th, and this is a service for anyone particularly who is feeling the weight of loss this year. Loss of a loved one, loss of life circumstances that you once had, just loss, even of mental health. Um, anyone who wants to just have a place to grieve, to hear scripture, we we're going to offer prayer ministry. We're going to hear some stories of people at Waterstone who've gone through the worst days imaginable. So we invite you to come if that service describes where you have lived over the last years. But also, I want to invite you as, as pastor, even if you would say that doesn't describe your life at this point, come in support. Come in support of others and just sit near them and pray during the service. We, we invite all to come on December 14th. It's good to see all of you this morning. Frankly, I'm a little surprised there's this many people here on a Thanksgiving weekend. I'm glad you're here. I read once that human beings are the only creatures that weep. Animals cry to get irritants out of their eyes. Human beings weep because of irritants in their soul. If it wasn't for tears, we'd all be blind, and our hearts would be full of scratches and brittle hard. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Year of our Lord, 2022, the first Sunday of Advent, we are preaching through the birth stories of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew this Advent. We're going to start with the last story, In Our End is Our Beginning, as T.S. Eliot said. And as you heard, what shall we say? This is a hard story. This is a story of sadness and tears and 
and lament. Now, if you attend most Christian services, like our lessons and carols kind of service, you won't even hear this story often read as one of the birth stories. It's just too atrocious. I was on a ministerial council years ago when we pastored in New England, and uh, we each year decided what scripture readings we were going to read. I'm, I'm still amazed, and they're still getting away with it in my former church. On the town square in Osterville, they would read part of the Christmas story to thousands of people in public in the town square. And this one year we were debating about whether to read all of Matthew 2 or just the good part about the Persian academics. And uh, the Catholic priest and I were on one side. We said, of course you should read this story because Christianity, like no other religion, speaks directly to suffering and loss. But the Methodist and the Episcopal, who were good friends of mine, said, we shouldn't do that. And I'll never forget the Methodist minister saying, yeah, if we read that story, no one's going to want to sing Christmas carols after that story. In the fields of Bethlehem, where there was once angels and bright light and a proclamation of peace to the world, just months later in those same fields was the blood of 20 or 30 toddlers. We're reminded this morning that the gospel writers, Matthew in this case, holy cow, I see a Penn State shirt out there. Wow, Tim. Rock on, dude. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh, I think that's the first time that's ever happened to me preaching, Tim. So mark, mark this moment. Where was I? I was in joy somewhere. The gospel writers had a lot of material to choose from. In fact, John in his gospel says, if we wrote everything down about Jesus, all that he did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to write it. So Matthew had a lot of material to write his gospel. And yet, well, two reasons that the gospel writers chose to put in their gospels what they did. One, it happened. And two, they chose these stories to share with the church in perpetuity that this tells us something about who Jesus is and what the announcement of his kingship means, the gospel. And so today, with this sad story, we are going to learn that Matthew wants us to know that in the arrival of this baby, what Christmas means is that a king has come. And this king is a sovereign king. And this king is a suffering king. A king has come. A sovereign king. A suffering king. That's what this story means. So here's the story. These Persian academics had seen something in the stars that alerted them. This is God speaking through what we call general revelation. God is always talking. Psalm 19 says that the firmament of the land is always talking about God, and the skies are always talking about God. We like to think God is so quiet. He's never quiet. He's always talking. They saw something in the stars that actually they figured out, pointed to an amazing special birth that was somewhere in the Middle East, so they follow the Persians, the, the, the Persian academics follow the star, and they come to Judea, they come to the area of Jerusalem, 
And they thought, you know, if we want to know who the rightful king is, let's talk to the reigning king. And they go to Herod, and they ask, you know, where is the one? And this is the language. This is the troublesome language. This explains everything that happens. Where is the one born king of the Jews? The text goes on to say that that troubled the entire city of Jerusalem. These esteemed Persian teachers asking where the one born king of the Jews is, and it especially troubled the reigning king of Israel, Herod the Great. Now, at this point in history, Herod the Great is 70 years old and dying of cancer. His reign was known for two things, buildings and bloodshed. He built the, the last rendition of the temple. You can still go to the Temple Mount today and touch stones that were placed there by Herod's reign. You, he also built a city and gave it to Caesar called Caesarea, and you can travel there and touch stones from amazing structures that Herod built. He was a builder, but he was also treacherous, ruthless politician. When he came to power, it was actually the changing of dynasties and families. He was the uh, Idumean. In fact, he was known as the Mad Idumean. And when he came to power, he totally slaughtered the previous family that reigned, the Hasmonean dynasty, wiped them out. One day, he was so upset with his ruling uh, uh, officials and administration that he killed 300 of them in a day. Another time, he was so upset with the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, he uh, killed half of them, 35 men on the spot. He killed his wife, who he perceived as a threat. He killed her mother. He killed three of their sons. And word of that got to uh, the Caesar, the ruler of the empire, and uh, Herod, or, uh, Caesar made this famous quip that Josephus quotes, it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. As he neared death, he imprisoned some of the most influential people of the city of Jerusalem, held them with orders that they be killed at the moment of his death so that the country would weep over his death. Fortunately, when he died, they did not carry that out. My point in all of this is to say this, the slaughter of 20 or 30 toddler boys in Bethlehem was a mere footnote to a brutal legacy. God told the Persian academics in a dream not to go back to Herod, and so Herod took matters into his own hands, and he killed what scholars believe to be 20 or 30 toddler boys to remove all threats. At the, uh, at the instigation of all this, we have one of the most haunting uses of an Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, I want us to see these words and read them together. Matthew 2, 18. Would you out loud feel these words as we read them together? A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Well, Matthew says that we should include this as we talk about Jesus' birth. He's making the point that a king has come. And so what are we to learn from this story? And what does it mean that a king has come? Let's talk about that first part, a king has come. It doesn't take a degree, a, a doctorate in political psychology to understand that when one king comes into another king's 
kingdom unannounced, there's going to be conflict. When Jesus comes, even as a baby, though news around him that he's king, let's just say it brings new war and new peace. It brings uh, new, it's news that solves problems and it's news that causes problems. This was uh, news that was all around Jesus his entire life with us, those 33 years that he lived among us. In um, Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was eight days old, his parents took him to the temple to be dedicated and circumcised. And uh, there was this, I love to preach on this text, by the way. I hope I get to again some year before I'm done. It's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament when uh, Ananias uh, this old guy, I mean Simeon, excuse me, Simeon, this old guy, comes and he's looking for the Messiah. The, the Lord revealed to him that he wouldn't die until he sees the Messiah. And uh, you can imagine out in the concourse and car mothers carrying their babies and this old man coming up and saying, let me see, let me see. I mean, we call security on the dude today. But he's got to speak these words over an eight-day-old baby boy. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. He came to bring new peace and new strife. A sword will pierce your own soul too. And then, not only was that spoken over Jesus, but Jesus himself spoke this about his ministry in Matthew chapter 10. These are the words of Jesus describing why he came. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What does this mean that Christmas brings new peace and new strife? Well, I think it first occurs on a global level, the rising and falling of many in Israel, a, a global level. We go, for instance, to Revelation chapter 18, and we read of this great empire, Babylon. Now, Babylon hadn't been in existence for thousands of years at this point, a thousand years, but, or, uh, well, 600 years at this point. But uh, John, in this vision, is seeing Babylon, and Babylon, it says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And what he's seeing is that Babylon represents every human empire that has ever existed, every great nation, every small nation, every human government that has risen to power and now is no longer existing or in power. And all of them are there. And in Revelation 18, it tells us that the reason they're not there is because the leaders became drunk with power and pursued wealth. And the people only cared about personal peace and affluency. And thus, in all civilizations, every human empire, there has always been this dark, grim line that runs through every civilization, including our own. 
where we dispose of life that is not wanted and will be held accountable. And there's judgment. And every human civilization rises and falls, including our own, and will end up in Revelation 18. Dead. No more. Do you know why? Because every human leader, Herod the Great, I remember a few years ago, in, uh, made world press, but it happened in England, they found the bones of King Richard III under a London parking lot. My first thought, oh well, another dead king. 40 of 46 United States presidents, dead. And the statistics are pretty good for the other six. Every human leader dies. Every human civilization dies. But there is only one person in the history of the world who has gone through the pitiless walls of death, entered the tomb, and walked out by his own power. And that's Jesus Christ. And he lives and he reigns. He's the king of kings. And you know what happens after Revelation 18? Revelation 19. And Revelation 19 says, here he comes. He's riding a white horse with a sword. His name is faithful and true. His robe is dipped in blood, his own blood. And he rules the nations. Jesus came to bring a sword, and he rules over all nations. That's what Christmas means. And you and me, we have to make our choice about what Christmas means globally. We have to make our choice about being on the quote-unquote right side of history. I'm telling you, Christmas means that the right side of history means being on the side of believing that a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago shaped and changed everything. It has global ramifications. Jesus brings new peace and new war. It also has personal implications. I first read about these, and I need to give credit to Tim Keller in his great book, The Hidden Christmas, Hidden Christmas. He talks about how Jesus comes and brings new peace and new strife into every personal life. So what's the new peace? Well, Jesus is the only king who can change a human heart. The governments can feed bellies. Jesus is the king who can change human hearts. And what Jesus does to change human hearts is he brings new peace. So you say, what's the new peace? Well, when a person comes and receives Jesus as their king, as their, as their savior, they get a peace, for instance, of conscience. That everything we've done, every mistake we've made, every regret we have, every sin we've done, and we knew it and it was wrong and we still did it. Because of Jesus, it no longer stands in the middle between us and God. In other words, we are forgiven. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Jesus offers to take that out of the middle. And you can have peace with God. And you can live overcoming shame and guilt because you have a peace of conscience given by Jesus Christ. We also have the peace of identity. You know, our culture pushes us to certain things to say, you've got to have this if you're going to be a successful person. You've got to have the right looks. You've got to, you know, have the right letters before or after your name. You've got to graduate from the right schools. You've got to have a, the right career. You've got to have a certain economic level to say that you've made it. 
and you know, not disparaging any of those except when we make those king. Those are all worthy pursuits. But here's the story. You are already losing control of those pursuits. I read a great book. I keep quoting it. It's called Strength to Strength by Arthur Brooke. And he talks about how you know, we're, we have strength when we're young and strength when we're old, and the goal is to bring those together. And, uh, but he made this astounding, he has this research, he teaches at Harvard, and he says, do you know what your peak years are for your mental acuity to be the most successful in your career? 35 to 40 years old. Yeah. Well, not me, Arthur Brooks. Harvard, our fair city. Now, those things, your looks, your, uh, your, your professional acuity, all those things are like a wave. They've come in, we ride them, it's going back out. You are already losing them. You are losing your family relationships. Your kids are growing up. All the things you hold most dear in this life, you will lose. Jesus' peace says, I give you something that you will never lose. I call you children of God. How's that for an identity? You can never lose that relationship. You can never lose that identity to be a child of God. And that can hold us rock solid as the waves go out and the losses come in our life. What holds you, what anchors you, is that you are a child of God first and last. Peace of conscience, peace of identity. How about a peace of circumstance? Now, I've wrestled with that terminology. I'm not sure that's a fair one. How, how about this? I think when we come to know Jesus and we take his name and become a Christian, he becomes like the, the center of our lives and we orbit everything around him. I believe that what he gives us is <laughs> controlled anxiety. Many of us are in the stock market. Has there been any, any uh, 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 I can't even say it, any anxiety in the stock market lately? The waves going, what's going out on the stock market right now is the day you can retire. <laughs> but here's how a Christian thinks. Here's how, how a Christian manages and controls anxiety. They think, yeah, man, this is terrible. I might have to work longer. I'm losing, like I'm losing money. Money, I, it's, you know, paper money, but I'm losing it. But then the thought crosses a Christian's mind, but wait, my true wealth is not here. It's in heaven. It's in the ways I've invested into the kingdom. What the New Testament calls your gold, your silver, your precious jewels, any action of love that you've invested in the name of Jesus and another person, and, and, and the mission of the church, all those things. You have true wealth in heaven that you will never lose. You have true health, a new resurrection body waiting you that you will never lose. You have identity. Those are the peace gifts of Christmas. That's what Jesus came to bring. 
new peace, but he also came to bring new strife to us personally. New strife. So what, what kind of strife? Well, when you become a Christian, <laughs> here's the bottom line strife. You have to love other people. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what loving God looks like, loving your neighbor. You have to love. You and I both know that the easiest way to live a life of comfort is to live selfish. Not care about anyone else, not worry about other people's problems, not to get involved in any other situations, just give me my life, my comfort, my peace, and leave me alone. You know how in college, those of you that are in college, um, you read books in college age that will shape the rest of your life. And you hold on to that throughout your years. And for me, in college, I came across a guy that I'd recommend you read in college named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a book once that just like jolted me. It was called The Four Loves. And he, he had this one section on what it means to live selfish that I've never forgotten. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. <laughs> Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Jesus brings new strife into our life. And that strife is that we have to love others sacrificially. We have to lay down our personal wants and needs for their best interest all the time. In family, friends, community, jobs, everywhere. We must love. And I'm telling you, your heart will be broken when you love. Everyone you know will disappoint you. Do you know the other way that he brings new strife, this king that's come? He brings new strife in uh, that um, we get caught up in the middle between the way the empires view Christianity and Jesus and the way that Christians view Jesus. We get caught up in this in-between space where the empire wants nothing to do with Jesus and will put him down. Uh, we've talked about it here at Waterstone over the last weeks. Uh, on, on, in our culture, it's often about shunning. It's often about canceling. It's about, you know, being marginalized. But in many places around the world, it's much more than that. It costs people's lives to take the name of Jesus and be a Christian. Jesus, or Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes about this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he says, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Now, I don't want to give a persecution complex here this morning. Uh, I, I don't think that you know, what this is a command to go out and become persecuted. Here's what I think Paul 
and Jesus talk about when Jesus says, I'm going to bring new strife into your life. He, he means that in Jesus' own life, there were elements of his life that were very winsome. In fact, the one description of his heart, Matthew gives us in chapter 11 when he says his heart was gentle and lowly. And in Jesus' ministry, even from his birth, there were those attracted to him, those that in power that wanted to get rid of him. All through his life, there were people that were drawn to him, and there were people who hated him and wanted to push him off a cliff. In the same way, at a much lower level, our lives should resemble his. Which means, if you are, for instance, being persecuted all the time, you have lost sight of the fact that Jesus was gentle and lowly and that masses of people were drawn to him and he was winsome. If you're being persecuted all the time, I submit to you as a brother in Christ that you are being rude and insensitive and self-righteous if you're being persecuted all the time. But the same is true on the other hand if you are never being persecuted, never being marginalized or shunned, never having the courage to bring Jesus into a conversation and there's that awkward silence, then I would submit to you that your witness is milk toast and you don't have the guts to talk about Jesus. Was that too harsh? If you are always being persecuted, you are unlike Jesus. If you are never being persecuted, you are unlike Jesus. A king has come, and he brings new peace and new strife. And this king, he's a sovereign king. He's a sovereign king. He's, in, in these nine verses that uh, Meg read for us, there are three prophecies. You heard them, Hosea, Jeremiah, and Moses uh, at the end, and Nazarene, that's from Numbers chapter 6. These, it's the sense that all of this is happening, all of this is happening because there's a big plan. There's a story that's unfolding. And what we believe about God is that He is the writer and author of history. And all of history is a story. And it's unfolding here. And what is the, the sense of this story, the mood of this story? Well, we get a sense of the mood of this story when uh, 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 God tells Joseph through a dream, not, and I never saw this before in the text. It's just amazing the depth and texture of the text of Jesus. But uh, what, uh, what I think happened is Joseph and Mary, you know, they were originally from Nazareth, but they, you know, were called to Bethlehem to give birth. And when they figure out and you know, are told who this child is, that he's the Messiah, I think their every intention is to live in Jerusalem. So that if, it's, if he's the Messiah, he should live near the temple, right? That's the logical choice, to move back to Jerusalem. But God warns them in a dream not to go back. It's too dangerous. But in fact, this is the plan to have Jesus grow up in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth. In John chapter 1, one of the early disciples, Andrew, finds out Jesus is Messiah. He goes and gets his best friend, like we do here at Waterstone all the time. We're going to invite our friends and neighbors. He invites his friend Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, I found the Messiah. He's Jesus from Nazareth. And do you remember Nathaniel's response? Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, Nazareth is like 
Ray, Colorado. How many of you have been to Ray, Colorado? You want to see it? Blink. You missed it. It's nowhere. Jesus grows up in the boondocks, as we said in Pennsylvania. The boondocks. Why? Well, we think that in order to have influence, you have to have like power. You have to graduate from the right schools. You have to be part of the right tribe. You have to have a certain economic, you know, all these things that we associate with influence. And in every other religion, frankly, that's the way to God. The five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of the Buddha, you have to climb the ladder. You have to be, make yourself into a better person. And God will accept you at some point if you become a better person. But here's the problem. You and I know that that ladder, that space between us and God, is infinite. What's an infinite ladder? An infinite ladder means you're always on the bottom rung. We can never be good enough. We can never improve ourselves. We can never live a better life that would gain the favor of God. We can't. He's holy. We're not. He's infinite. We're small. We are like ants trying to figure out how the watermelon got to the picnic. We cannot do it. And so what Christianity, distinct from all other worldviews, is that God comes down to the ladder. He comes down and he meets us on the bottom rung. He comes from Nazareth to welcome the nobodies. That's Jesus. That's a sovereign king who says what changes human hearts is grace, mercy, unmerited favor from God through his son, Jesus. He's a king, but he's a sovereign king come down to give us grace. That's the story. And lastly, he's a suffering king. We have to, for a moment, talk about those kids, those toddlers that were killed. The suffering of children is the most visceral, most painful suffering. That verse about Ramah, that prophecy, it references Rachel. Rachel was a mother of Israel. She gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin, the last two sons of Israel. She died giving birth to Benjamin at Ramah. There is nothing harder in life than to hear a mother weeping over her child. I've heard it. It's the worst. In Ramah, in Jeremiah's day, when he wrote the prophecy, what Ramah was was a port of deportation near Jerusalem where all the Jews were gathered and during the Babylonian Empire, they were shipped off to Iran and Iraq, taken out of their homes, out of their city, and spread throughout the empire. That was the way that Babylon did it and put down their enemies. They spread the nation into non-existence. And Rachel is weeping for her children now, all her sons, all her daughters. And here it's quoted again in the slaughter of the innocents at Bethlehem. It's a hard, hard picture. I remember reading in the great novel, Brothers Karamazov, 
when Dostoevsky has the two brothers in debate about the existence of God and Ivan Karamazov, the agnostic, he says, what about the children? How do we account for the suffering of children? And he says this to his brother Alyosha, those tears of children who suffer must be atoned for. How is it possible to atone for them if the suffering of little children is needed to complete the sum total of suffering required to pay for the truth? I don't want that truth. And I declare in advance that all the truth in the world is not worth the price. We cannot afford to pay so much for a ticket. And so I hasten to return the ticket I've been sent. It isn't that I reject God. I am simply returning him most respectfully the ticket that would entitle me to a seat. Perhaps the mothers of Bethlehem, if they had known that the life of Jesus Christ would cost the death of their little toddler boys, they would have wanted to return their ticket. The only way in these circumstances that I can doubt my doubts about God is to understand this, that God in allowing Jesus to escape allows one to come back and die for all. Jesus is the ticket. He is the one who lived and went on to live the life we should have lived. And he died from manger to cross, the death we should have died, in order that all who know him and love him will live. The toddlers in Bethlehem and anyone who follows him. Jesus is the ticket. And so we pray. We're going to have a time of prayer before we sing one more song. In ancient times, if I could set the prayer time up this way, in ancient times, it was a custom during a funeral service to pass a little bottle called a lacriatory, lacriatory, pass it around and all the mourners would hold it to their cheeks and put in their tears. Rachel weeping. For her children. And then that little lacriatory they would put into the coffin of the dead person and bury those tears. And those tears would become holy for that person, dedicated loyalty to that person. Do you know that in Psalm 56, David writes this, put my tears in your bottle. Oh Lord, when we cry tears for Jesus, when we cry tears with Jesus, those tears are buried in the tomb with Jesus and then resurrected life will need those bottles no more. But for now, it's tears. And so we pray. Let's pray together. Take any of these words into your heart and give them back to the Father. Lord Jesus, you are my King, sovereign and suffering.
And so I give you my heart and I give you my tears. Put my tears in your bottle and make them holy. Some of you have been weeping tears perhaps over a loved one you've lost. You've lost what is most dear. Tears over a child off track in a destructive way. Some of you are weeping because you know someone who's suffering immensely. Perhaps as you weep, you even wonder, what is the meaning of these tears? Perhaps you're angry with God, or at least very confused about what he's doing or allowing. That's okay. That's okay. Even Jesus felt forsaken by the plan of God. Surrender those tears to Jesus. He will not waste them. He will redeem them. Give him your bottle. In Jesus' name, give the Lord your tears. In Jesus' name, share in the tears of our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering. Give those tears to Jesus. In the name of Jesus, may we reap Rachel's tears for his glory. For one day, he changes all mourning into joy. One day. Merry Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us.